Hello, and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about Jeremiah 33, 14-18. He helps us to recognize, our desperate need for salvation is required if we are to embrace the coming Savior. Let's hear today's message. I hope and uh, a little bit expect that when you stepped into the church building this morning, you were caught up with, a, with at least a small sense of awe and uh, appreciation. It looks kind of different than it did last Sunday when you left, doesn't it? Boy, there have been people decorating not just the sanctuary, but probably every room in the church throughout this past week. And I and I just uh, want to offer a public appreciation uh, to them. Karen Calderon and Carol Horseman lead a team that I won't try to name because I'll leave somebody out. But, but really, they have been working nearly uh, full days for at least four or five, uh, four or five days this past week uh, to bless us uh, with these decorations, which I think are important to cue our spirit as we step into this season, as as we step into worship, that we would uh, remember the hope that we claim to take hold of. Space is important. Beauty is important. It cues the mind and the spirit and the body as we worship. And so uh, I just really want to say thanks. I don't think either Carol or Karen are here right now, uh, but many of you know who they are. So say thank you and ask who else was on their team so that you can thank them as well. It was with their work in mind that I felt a lot of pressure last night when I was decorating this, or wrapping this gift, because I thought, boy, this is going to be up here amongst the decorations that that they've put a lot of time into, and and if I don't wrap well, then it just won't match, right? I mean, they've been fluffing wreaths. We don't fluff wreaths in our home, but here you do it. There's that much, much, much detail. But I wanted to wrap a gift and put it in front of us as a, as a bit of an object lesson or a help as we try to get our mind into the passage that, that was just read for us. I want you to remember uh, a time that I'm, I'm sure is common to all of us, whether it's common in our own life as a child or as you watch other children in your life, be they yours or your grandchildren or, or someone else. Do you... Do you remember seeing a child eagerly anticipate receiving a gift, almost with desperation? Can you bring that to mind, that that memory? Again, whether it was you in your earliest years or some child you have recently seen. I want you to remember that and then contrast that thought with the way that you receive a gift as an adult. Hopefully with appreciation and gratitude, but, but do you note an absence of that eager desperation to tear the paper off? No, you don't remember that? <laughs> I remember for me, I remember a time, I, I don't remember how old I was, but it's one of those memories that sticks in your minds. I was with my mom at Toys R Us, Hamilton Road in Columbus, Ohio, 
we were there, she was buying a Christmas gift that I was going to receive. Of course, she wasn't hiding it from me, but I wasn't going to be able to take it at that moment either. And I was literally shaking in the checkout line. I was so excited. I think about my own kids. They, when they were young, scoured the house trying to find my hiding place for their gifts. And they found it in the place that I asked them to go into countless times before, the crawl space, right? Where I would need to go in there and fix something and little kids are great at spaces like that, but they would not do it because of spiders, except to find their gifts. So eager were they, so desperate to discover what it was. You know, this desperation is probably most uh, depicted in the movie The Christmas Story. Right? It plays every year, you know that one, right? Where little Ralphie is desperate to get what? The Red Rider BB gun, right? That's the picture of the, the desperation that I want you to draw to mind and then contrast it with, with the way you receive a gift as an adult. You know, again this year, my kids asked me, hey dad, what do you want for Christmas? And I gotta tell you, it was, I was grateful for the question I recognized their heart to give, but it was hard to give an answer. I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. I suppose you could get me this. What? What makes for the difference? Why, as a very young child, are we so eager, even desperate for a gift, and as an adult, not so? Certainly part of it must be maturity. Right? We recognize that, that no material thing is going to ultimately satisfy, and so there is not quite the, the desperation. But I think there's a more obvious, practical, easy answer. I think it's this. Most adults, at least in our community, in our part of the world, most of us can buy what we want, when we want it, ourselves. Is that true? Amen. Right. <laughs> so when my kids ask, hey, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And I rack my brain and go, ah, I've been wanting this tool from Lowe's, right? And so I suggest it to them. If they get it for me, I will be grateful as I unwrap it under the tree. But if they don't get it for me, guess where I'm going December 26th? And it's because of that, I, I don't think we're quite as eager or desperate. So I was thinking about the passage this morning and that illustration. I drew this conclusion, and I think it's important to kind of firmly plant this in your mind if we're to understand what the passage is bringing. The conclusion is this, an inability to meet a need or desire for ourselves is an absolute essential. It's a prerequisite for eagerly anticipating a gift from someone else. Get your head around that? Our inability to meet our own need, first the recognition of a need, and then our inability to meet it is absolutely required if we're going to receive a gift, not just with kind of measured appreciation and gratitude, but with eagerness 
and desperation and longing, such as we're called to during the season of Advent. Advent, as most of you are aware, is that four-Sunday, four-week, more or less, time in the history of the church year where we are called to intentionally nurture eager anticipation or even desperation for the coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means, is coming. And so uh, we enter into this season remembering Jesus' first coming as as a baby, bringing salvation in a profoundly mysterious way, but but not only that, we also are called throughout the history of the church to nurture a desperate desire to see Jesus return and to echo the calls of the church over the generations, come Lord Jesus, come. Here's the question I have for you. The one I really hope you'll take seriously and reflect on as we step into this passage. Is your spirit now, as we step into Advent, does it look more like that of a child nearly shaking in anticipation for opening the gift or an adult who's grateful? but kind of goes, gee, thanks. Look at yourself, your spirit. Reflect for a moment. Do you find yourself really, really, really eager to remember and celebrate the birth of Christ? Not, I mean, not all the other Christmas stuff. Not that that's bad, none of that's bad, but, but are you and is your spirit really just long? I, I just want to share the nativity story again. I want to remember again to the profound mystery that we share. Is there that eagerness? Is there an anticipation, even desperation, in the midst of the trouble and darkness we see all around us? Is, is your spirit cry out, Lord Jesus, come? Not in fear of the second coming and the end of days, but in longing for it. Got your answer? I I don't know confidently whether this is true or not, but my sense of you, of me, of most, is that the answer to that is we've left childlike ways behind. (laughs) that our entry into Advent is more of a, oh, this is nice. A gratitude and an appreciation, but something that lacks eager anticipation, certainly desperation. Why? Well, it's because what I said earlier. Try as we might, we fail to really recognize the depth of our need and our inability to take hold of it for ourselves. That we, we go about life thinking, if only I work harder, if only I work smarter, if only I can re- meet and introduce the right people, then, then I can experience, but no. Until we can't. 
that most of us in normal life act like we can meet our own need until we can't. Many of you are there too. Because you lose someone in spite of your desperate prayers, in spite of your longing, because your body just won't cooperate as hard as you work until you come to the end of your rope. And if you're there, especially at Advent, let me say that's the best place to be. Because in Advent, we are called to recognize our deep, deep need for the Savior and our absolute inability to meet that need ourselves. Jeremiah, and in fact, all of the passages we'll be looking at during Advent are meant to help us recognize that need so that we can nurture an anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, both in celebration in the first time and in reality when he comes again. And so if you haven't already, would you open to Jeremiah? Jeremiah 23. I want God's word to nurture that desperate, desperate spirit within each one of us as we step into Advent together. As you're turning there, allow me to pray once more. Lord God, we do recognize, most of us, that though we are grateful, um, we do not eagerly receive the gift that was given at Christmas in the way that a child would. We want that and uh, recognize our inability to, to nurture that for ourselves. And so, Lord, would you work through your word and by your spirit to help us recognize our own need and take hold of the hope that you offer to us in the coming of the Messiah to, meet, to be the one who meets every need that we have. It's in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we'll look at Jeremiah 33 in a second, but, but before we do, let me just tell you about Jeremiah a little bit. Jeremiah was a prophet in uh, Judah. His ministry took place during the reign of King Josiah. Remember last week we talked about King Josiah in a, in a line that included all sorts of evil kings that turned away from the Lord. Josiah was a bright spot. And because he lifted up God's word... Amongst the people, their covenant with God was renewed. And I encouraged you to give thought to how you might lift God's word up before yourself and your family during Advent that we might see renewal in our own lives and, and, the, and our church family as well. As just an aside, please notice that in the newsletter that comes via email every Friday, there's a whole list of resources that some have suggested that you might use. Some that are great for adults, some for families with little children. Consider lifting up God's word as Josiah did. It renewed the people uh, and their dependence on God for a moment. But it didn't last. Josiah was followed by his son. His name was Jehoiakim. And, and Jeremiah the prophet, his ministry spanned both reigns. Both the end of Josiah's reign and the beginning of of Jehoiakim. And Jeremiah was given a, a task by God to announce two messages. Remember, a prophet is not a fortune teller. 
in the Old Testament. A prophet is one who is a messenger and one who announces things for God. And so God had two messages for his people, Judah, uh, through his prophet, Jeremiah. If you have your Bible open, flip back to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 14. I'll show you the first. This message is all throughout the book, but this is one example of it that I think you'll be able to use to take hold of that first message. Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning at verse 8, says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That was the first message given to Jeremiah to proclaim amongst the people. Could you imagine how challenging that was? I mean, Jeremiah was no one's favorite person in Judah that day. If you've been to a sports event recently, maybe you you remember that street corner preacher who's yelling to the crowds, Turn! You're going to hell because of all of these things. And he'll list off all these vices. I remember going to a Cleveland Browns game in the last year. And heard someone like that and thought, that does not seem like the best approach to me, right? And yet, that's what Jeremiah was called to do. And indeed, God kept his promise. In 586 B.C., this is history, Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon overran and overthrew Jerusalem and devastated the people. But that wasn't the only message God gave to Jeremiah for the people. The second can be noticed if you flip a page and go over to chapter 29. And follow along as I read beginning at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise. To bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Notice the evidence of what we've already talked about, that God gives them over to despair so that they might become desperate, eager for his salvation, so that they might call out to him and pray to him. And so they did, and so God kept his promise here. That 70 years later, through Persian kings, the people were permitted to go back to Jerusalem. And Pastor Jason will help us think through that in a couple of weeks when he preaches from from Ezra. But Jeremiah is more than just a history lesson about Israel for us, for through him, 
God uh, announces a prophecy that has nothing to do with Israel and Babylon and all of that and everything to do with the promise that is for all people, a promise that has been yet to be fully completed. It's why we've entitled the, the sermon series that will take up this next few weeks, Promises Made and Promises Kept, because that's what Advent's all about is to recognize and understand the promise that was made to us through the Messiah. And then to look at our world and look at our life and ask the question, has that promise been kept? That's what we'll do together. And so let's consider this morning the promise made and the promise kept as put before us by by Jeremiah. Look at, look at verse or chapter 33, our main text. Boy, those of you who have been living with glasses for years, how do you do it? I can't. I'm like, I, had, I need a third hand here, I think. Look at verse 14. I want you to notice the promise that is made is a promise for a specific time. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel in Judah. This is a promise for a specific day, a specific time. It has to do with a specific person. If you continue to read on, you will see uh, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. You might notice capital B on the branch. That's a, that's a messianic indicator that this is, this is the Messiah that we're talking about. And he's coming from the line of King David. If you travel down a little further, you'll, say, you'll see it. we call him the Lord, our righteous Savior at the end of verse 16. So it's a promise for a specific time having to do with a specific purpose and if you want to know what, what is the promise itself, we'll just look at the passages we skipped over. Verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. Which leads me to ask the question, well, has this day come? I saw somebody shaking their head no. I think I saw somebody shaking their head yes. I think I saw a very talented person doing this diagonal kind of, <laughs> right? Has this day come? Well, let's consider, I mean, what, is, what does safety look like? Where does salvation come from? Ask yourselves those questions. Does safety look like a wall? Many people would say that. In Jerusalem, they would say that, right? That safety is a wall. If we have a wall, we'll be safe. But it's not a wall. If it were, then the, the fulfillment of this pro prophecy might have been seen in King Artaxerxes, who will come later and allow Nebuchadnezzar to rebuild the wall and Ezra to rebuild the temple. It's not a, it's not a wall. Should be obvious as we look at the news today. If we, if we take a prophecy like this and say, this is fulfilled and our, in our minds safety looks like the safety that a wall provides, then we don't know our history. And we're not reading the newspaper. For from the time of the Roman Empire to our day with Hamas, Jerusalem is under siege. They're anything but safe. 
What does safety look like? Where, where does salvation come from? Uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a religion. Maybe it's the temple. Again, Ezra's going to lead in the rebuilding of the temple. But, but remember, Jesus, when he walked through Jerusalem and the disciples said to him, hey, Jesus, check out that building. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how, does, how do people build such things? He said this, John chapter 2. Look at this verse. Yeah. Destroy this temple. And now raise it again in three days. It's not the temple, Jesus was, was saying. It, 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 that's not where salvation comes from. That's not what safety looks like. Reflect on it in your own life. What does safety look like? Where does salvation come from? I go to the doctor tomorrow. Does safety look like the doctor saying to me, hey, Clint, I'm giving you a perfect bill of health? There's a part of my spirit that wants to say that. Ooh, I'm, I'm desperate to hear those words. That's not what safety looks like. Where does salvation come from? If, if only we can get this person and that person, you know, mother and daughter, brother or sister, friend and neighbor, if we can get them together this Christmas and, and they'll work it out and things will be restored, that that's what salvation looks like. Or if I could only accumulate enough money in my account, no one here wants to be rich, right? Don't raise your hand if you do. You'll be judged. I know you will. You don't want to be rich. You just want to have enough, enough to be safe. Enough to be secure, because that's where safety or security comes from, right? The total balance in the account. But it's not. You know that. What does safety look like? Where does salvation come from? Come on, we've been traveling through God's story since September. And you know the stories that answer that question. What does safety look like? Where does salvation come from? When, when, when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, was it, the, was it political savvy that finally convinced Pharaoh to release the people from slavery? No. Are you sure? Okay. What about like on the border of the promised land, right? The, the, the people working with their real estate agent, of course, you know, they had invested enough, accumulated enough, and they were going to purchase the promised land. That's what safety looked like. That's where salvation comes from because they had enough. Is that true? No. When the people living in the promised land were threatened by all their enemies from every side, surely it was the might of their military that defined what safety looked like and ushered in salvation, right? No. No, it wasn't. What's the answer? Jeremiah and all the prophets tell the answer, not only to them, but to us. That safety and salvation come from God and God alone, and it's found by being in right relationship with him. And so he sends one we're told, one who is the righteous branch. Jesus 
is the righteous branch. I hope you are aware. He's the one in David's line who is given to secure our safety and to provide for our salvation. He says, John 15, 5, I am the vine, or in language that might help us, I'm the big branch, right? And you're the little branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Safety and salvation, Jesus says, is found in me. This promise, of course, through Jeremiah is made to the people of Israel and Judah. But it's St. It's Paul in Romans chapter 11 who helps us recognize that this promise to Judah and Israel is now available to all people. That like a wild branch, through Jesus, we can be grafted in to that chosen tree, those people that God picked out through the person of Abraham long ago. So that, 1 Peter 3.18, that as Christ also suffered once for sins, remember that righteous branch, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, and he was made alive in the spirit. So let me ask you again, has this day come? Yes, yes, it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, it has come, and not quite yet. It's come in the person of Jesus. When Jesus was born as a baby, he inaugurated his rule in the world, and it's why we celebrate not only his birth, but also his death, his resurrection, and the giving of his spirit. He is the one Jeremiah speaks of. Verse 17 here. Notice it. When Jeremiah says, you will never fail to have one from David on the throne. That's Jesus. He has come to bring his perfect rule into the world. And more than that, verse 18, he has come. In the way of the priests who offer sacrifices so that we ourselves might have that one who stands before the Father offering offering sacrifices on our behalf that when we fail to live in faithfulness to the King who reigns, we will not be treated as our sins deserve but forgiven over and over and over and over again. Has this day come? Yes! Come on, gang. I'm preaching up here. And you're, it's come, right? And you can know it in relationship with Jesus. In relationship with Jesus. Not by receiving a gift like, huh, gee, thanks, another tie. But by going, oh my goodness, I never knew I had such need and how you so profoundly meet it. Do you know Jesus? Well, of course, I'm a member of the church. I don't care if you're a member of the church. Do you know Jesus? Like the vine and the branches, intimately, desperately, eagerly seeking life only through him. If you do, this day has come. Mostly, (laughs) mostly. For as we all know, sin and evil remain. 
They remain until he returns again. Until he returns and says, we're done with that. And puts an end to it. But until then, we face confusion, frustration, pain, despair. Until he comes again. And that's why Advent's so important. Because it allows us to both take hold of the hope of the gospel found only in Jesus and make sense of all the darkness and despair that remains in our life. That if we take hold of and embrace Advent rightly, it, it, it allows us to make sense of the world and sense of what's going on in our lives. So I ask you again, do you, do you recognize your need deep in your soul and your absolute inability to meet it? Do you see that even as you set your own goals, your own ambitions, your own expectations for your life, you fall short? How much more would you fall short of the expectations of a holy God? You, you know the story of Israel. God gives them chance upon chance upon chance. They fail to recognize their need, and when they recognize it, at least in little bits, they go, Oh, just give us a king. Just give us this help. Just give us that military, just, and we'll do it for, don't we do the same? We say, if only we could acquire enough money, be promoted to the right position, find the right partner, see the right doctor, elect the right leader, then we'll experience safety and salvation. And here's the real problem for many of us. And this is a problem that is somewhat unique to us. In, in a way that I'm saying not everybody around the world faces this. That even as we think if only we have enough money or enough positional power at work or the right partner or go to see the right doctors, any of that? Most of us have a lot of money. Most of us have significant power. Many of us have been blessed with a wonderful partner. Some of you are going to go see four doctors this week. I'll not ask you to raise your hand, but I bet, I bet that's true, at least of somebody. How do you... How does a middle-upper-class American group of people who are really desperate for nothing Come to grips with the message that's here. Now, I'm not blaming you. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. But notice the danger that we're in. Because we have so much, we can fail to see our true need. And the only place where it can be met. It's why the poor and abandoned and marginalized people of the world are always so much quicker to embrace Jesus. It's why in love God gave his people long ago in Judah over to the Babylonians because they, like us, just didn't see it. And so he had to enable them to go through that so that they might call out and pray to him and take hold of the salvation that would be theirs. And it's why we so desperately need the help of God's Spirit as we step into Advent. We're coming to the table here in a moment. And I want us to recognize how much of a gift it is like this. It's a gift where we're meant to remember and take hold of and nurture this desperation that 
that no food can save us, no food provides security, only the nourishment of Jesus himself. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 18, verse 2. You'll know these words. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Take that as a warning as you think about the way that you receive the gift. Unless you change, Jesus says, and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we encounter the the continuing evidence of sin and evil in the world, read about reports of war abroad and see injustice here at home as our bodies fail us. You know that feeling. As our bodies fail us and our, and our families fall apart and our friendships disintegrate as we wrestle with our own sense of failure and inadequacy and insecurity. Let's not try to save ourselves. Let's thank God for it. And turn to him. The only place of true salvation. The only place where security is found. Let's remember and celebrate the life that was given that we might be saved, given so long ago. And let's echo the call of the church over the generations. When, O Lord, when? Come again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come. We come to this table at your invitation. And we give thanks for it. For you told your disciples that until you came again, you would be with us in this sacrament. So help us to believe your words. Help us to come with eager anticipation, almost desperation for you, Jesus, for you are our food. You are the bread of life. You are the living water. Without you, we have nothing. Help us to see this, Lord, and change to receive you like a child, that we might step into the kingdom of heaven that is here and now and yet awaits us in those final days ahead. We pray, Lord, for these elements on this table. We recognize they're common elements, but by your Spirit, they might be changed, that they might carry your very presence. And so we pray, meet us here. It is in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.